Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Much of science journalism today has been reduced to quick stories which are light in the details and have overhyped headlines that are not even accurate. Our goal with this podcast is to change all that. We want to report on breaking science news stories and actually go into the details of the methods and have a discussion of the implications. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, tickling in the name of love, how one species of crab risks their lives and dignity to find a mate. And your brain in space, keeping astronauts safe and smart. Jesse, why don't you start us off? All right. Well, so uh, <laughs> this story I found absolutely adorable and really quite funny. All right. This is uh, from a paper that was published in a journal called Parasite, which I didn't even know existed. That's an awesome journal. <laughs> yeah. They actually, they actually just steal stories from other journals. <laughs> it's very meta. But no, this is, this is an actual journal. It's a real scientific okay. journal. And uh, this is a paper that was published about a species of crab in New Zealand called the New Zealand pea crab. Okay. Um, and it's a very small little crab, which is, unsurprisingly, a parasite. Um, these crabs live alone inside shellfish, uh, and they feed off of them and their food in order to survive. Okay, so just to like get all our terms defined, what's a parasite? Well, in this case, it's pretty much that. Um, a lot of us have heard of a symbiotic relationship, which is where uh, mm -hmm. two organisms benefit from each other. A parasitic relationship is where the parasite feeds or benefits off of its host, who is actually harmed by the relationship, usually. Okay, so it's good for one, but not the other. Yeah, exactly. In this case, it's quite great for the crabs, because they get the safe home inside of uh, an oyster or mussel or a clam. Okay. But the, the, you know, perhaps the mussel in question actually loses some of its food, and in some cases has some of its insides eaten. So that's not really so fun. Oh. So um, I said oysters, mussels, and clams. These are, these are bivalves, is the type of organism that these crabs live inside. So it's been a mystery for a long time as to how these pea crabs actually find each other to reproduce because they, they live alone inside of these mollusks. Okay, and I guess the mollusks don't go visit each other very often. No, not usually. So okay. it hasn't really been known how they find each other in order to actually find a mate. Um, but using infrared cameras, these researchers in New Zealand were able to observe the males adventuring out from the mussels that they live in in the middle of the night. Okay. Um, and this was a pretty big deal because they don't normally leave their hosts. They're usually pretty happy in there. But obviously, in order to reproduce, they're going to have to leave at some point. So what the researchers saw is that these male crabs would find mussels that contain the females, and then they'd start to do something absolutely bizarre. So for up to four hours, these little crabs started rubbing and tickling the same spot on the mussels with their legs and pincers. Okay, yeah, sure. So you can, you can imagine these tiny little crabs that are hanging onto the outside of um, a mussel and quite literally, you know, tickling and rubbing it. All right. T tickling its shell or trying to, like, get into the crack between the two shells? Yeah, a, part, a piece of the opening where the crack is. Um, so on average, the crabs tickled the same area for around 200 minutes. Whoa. Uh, which, um, for context, is about the runtime of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. That is a lot of foreplay. 
Yeah, that's, that's a long time. Well, it's not foreplay because they're not trying to reproduce with the muscle. Right. What they're trying to do is get at the female who's living inside the muscle. Right. I don't know what to call that, but it's a lot of it, whatever it is. Yeah, that's, that is a really long time. Yeah. Um, interestingly, they, they spent uh, about 50 minutes on empty hosts. So they try for a while at oh. some muscles that didn't contain any females. So they can't tell if there's a crab in there. Yeah, it's obviously not super clear, um, but they'd usually figure it out relatively quickly. Um, okay. You know, with, within an hour of, right. of pointless tickling. Right. But once they found a host, so a mussel or oyster or whatever, that actually had a female in it, mm -hmm. they didn't leave it. So okay. at some point they detect the scent or whatever it is and they stay there and they keep going until... Until it gets open. Until it opens up. Exactly. Right. So what's the purpose of the tickling here is the obvious question. Yeah. Um, we don't really know exactly why this works to get them to open up, mm -hmm. but the researchers have a couple theories. The males have two goals here. Firstly, they want to get the muscle to open up so they can get inside to get to the female. Mm -hmm. But secondly, and possibly more importantly, they want to avoid getting crushed to death by the muscles. They can do that? Yeah. As it turns out, the muscles actually can move pretty fast. And if they detect the crabs entering them, they will often snap shut and crush these crabs to death. Oh. Yeah. I, I had no idea muscles could do that. Yeah, me neither. So so like they're just like snapping shut the two shells. Totally. So it's actually okay. a pretty dangerous affair trying to get into one of these things. All right. Um, so the running theory that the researchers have right now is that this tickling process relaxes and desensitizes the muscle to the crab <laughs> so that it can later enter unnoticed. Okay. Um, they're basically, they're just trying to numb that part of the muscle up. Um, kind of like when you go to the dentist and you get... Right, a local anesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, so that you don't feel, uh, you know, the drill rooting around in your teeth. Uh, we think All it's right. the same basic premise with these muscles. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this is a pretty cool sort of nature, you crazy kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. In the past, it was thought that the males sought out the females, but there was no proof mm -hmm. of this. So this is the first time that that's been proven. Okay. Um. This discovery also explains the bizarre population breakdown um, that was observed for these crabs. Um, in the wild, only one in five adult pea crabs are male. One in five? One in five. So there are five oh. times as many adult females in the wild as there are adult males. So are the males all just getting killed then? Well, that's the theory, is that the males are having to oh. adventure out of their safe houses. Yeah. And that this kills a huge number of them. Many of them don't survive the search, either because they get picked off by predators along the way, or when they're trying to actually enter, they get crushed to death. Wow. Yeah. They would only leave at night to go and uh, tickle their way in. Yeah. And so it's theorized that this is because the muscles are less active at night and also it's darker and more difficult to be seen by predators. Of course. So uh, it's a pretty cool thing. It's a pretty neat little fact. Um, but are there any yeah. real world implications to this? Uh, do, do pea crabs matter? It's um, <laughs> a good question. As it turns out, they do. And I, I didn't even think that there would be this much of a real world implication to this. All right. But as it turns out, in New Zealand, commercial muscle farms are a huge business. Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. And up to 60% of mussels on some of these mussel farms are affected by the pea crabs. Okay. When the mussels have pea crabs living inside of them, their growth is stunted somewhat, which reduces okay. the output on the farms. Right. So one of the authors in this study actually is hoping to synthesize the scent of the females and create an artificial version of it 
and use that to lure oh. males into traps to cut down the population of the parasite in these areas. <laughs> Poor males. I know, it's brutal. They're, they're already yeah. so outnumbered. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so there, there, there is actually... There you go. Yeah. This study muscle is actually farms. going to go towards uh, improving the efficiency of muscle farms. Huh. If you're eating mussels in New Zealand... Do you like open up a muscle or open up 60% of your muscles and have like a crab crawl out? <laughs> well, they're considered a bothersome pest in um, in New Zealand. But mm. I've heard, and I have not confirmed this, I've heard that in some countries opening up a muscle and finding the pea crab inside is actually considered lucky or a delicacy or... Ah. Yeah, so there's maybe some benefit to having them inside. There you go. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, a bizarre bit of nature and if you go online and we'll put the links to this in the show notes yeah um you can actually watch a video of this crab hanging on to a muscle and just tickling the hell out of it no way i gotta watch yeah. that yeah it's really crazy is it is it actually like two hours long <laughs> i assume that you can theoretically watch a four hour long version of this uh, don't forget four hours was the maximum time this was observed right um <laughs> but uh no, this is just a short clip on the website gotcha yeah All right, so one of the big goals, in fact, probably the biggest goal right now in human spaceflight is to put a person on Mars. Yes. Right? And this is something we're hoping to do within the next couple decades. And even though there isn't exactly a plan in place to get someone from the Earth to Mars, well, maybe that Mars One thing, <laughs> but that might also not work. There is a lot of planning going on and a lot of studying of exactly how you do that and how you plan for all the potential issues that occur when you take a human being and you take them from Earth and put them on Mars and right. all the maybe stuff in get between. them back again. Yeah. Hopefully get them back again. Exactly. <laughs> so one of the key issues which is being studied and which we're going to talk about today is that if you put someone on Mars, that astronaut will be spending years outside of Earth's magnetic field. Okay. And this is key because Earth's magnetic field protects us from harmful radiation. It just sort of exists in space. So this isn't radiation that's coming from the sun? This is... No, these are galactic cosmic rays. Okay, interesting. So these are these are high energy ions that just sort of flow through space. Okay. So this poses a potential serious risk to astronauts as it's been theorized that these cosmic rays can reduce your cognitive ability. Okay, that's scary. It's scary. And as you can probably imagine, the cognitive ability of astronauts is kind of key to the success of a big space mission like this. It seems pretty critical. You don't want something making your astronauts less smart. Yeah, exactly. You don't want something making your astronauts less smart. And it's particularly important because if you think about it, if you're chilling near Mars, communication to Earth, just like a one-way message, takes about 13 minutes. Oh, interesting. So for a message to be sent and then for people on earth to decide something and send something back that's nearly half an hour right so they need to be able to make all these decisions independently exactly they need to be able to make every decision in an emergency quickly and independently of course so scientists are now trying to figure out what sort of effects radiation could have on astronauts as they travel through space for years and how do we figure this out i mean one idea is we could look at astronauts who've spent a long time on the international space station right they're somewhat in Earth's magnetic field, but they're certainly exposed to more radiation than us down on the surface. Okay, that makes sense. There's some problems with this, though. You have a really small sample size of people, and it's hard to normalize for other factors, such as the fact that living on a space station causes you a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. 
it's not just all floating through space singing David Bowie songs. <laughs> as much as we'd like to think that. And uh, it's also hard to figure out exactly how much radiation each astronaut was exposed to. Okay. So it's hard to normalize the effects to the amount of radiation they get. So, Jesse, what do we do when we can't use humans? We use animals, don't we? We use mice. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the researchers here took a bunch of mice to the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory in Upton, New York. And this is the home of a particle accelerator. (laughs) And they then took the mice and they put them in the particle accelerator. Oh, my God. That's a funny Um, visual. It's a funny visual, and it's i mean—it's pretty much what happened. Do you want Super Mouse or S- Mouse Man? Yeah, that's the origin story for something, hey? It's the origin story for some weird superhero. Um, so what they did is they essentially used this particle accelerator to bombard the brains of mice with oxygen and titanium ions, which are thought to be similar to the sort of things that astronauts in space would get exposed to. So quickly, Lucas, what are ions exactly? Okay, so... You know how we have atoms, and atoms have three basic components. They've got protons, neutrons, and electrons. Right. The protons are positive charges, the neutrons are neutral, so let's forget about them for a moment, and the electrons are negative charges. Mm -hmm. So ions are atoms with more or less electrons relative to the number of protons. So this gives you them a charge. It essentially means a charged atom. Okay, cool. Right, so either positive or a negative charge. Okay. They then waited six weeks, and they put the irradiated mice and a control group of mice who was not irradiated through a series of cognitive tests. Okay. And the idea behind these tests were they were exposing the mice to both familiar and unfamiliar objects. Okay. And then researchers tracked the amount of time the mice spent exploring the new objects versus the ones they'd already seen before. Okay. So the idea is that they spend less time on the things that they already know. Exactly. So from the time the mice spent exploring new objects versus old objects, they calculated something that they call a discrimination index. So this is essentially just the fraction of time exploring new objects relative to the fraction of time exploring old objects. And the researchers found a very clear relationship. The mice who were exposed to more radiation had lower discrimination indices, in fact, about nine times lower than the mice in the control group. So that means that they were spending more time on the stuff they already knew. Exactly. They were spending less time on the new objects relative to the familiar ones. Okay. So the researchers interpreted this decrease as a decrease in the recognition of familiar objects and a decrease in the ability to retain spatial memories. Wow, that's a scary result. It really is, isn't it? So once again, being, you know, mice researchers, after testing... They took slices of these little mousy brains and they scanned them with microscopes to look at the structure of the neurons. They actually reconstructed the structure of the neurons using 3D modeling software. Oh, holy cow. Which created these really cool uh, figures in the paper, which kind of look like trees. Interesting. Yeah, all these branching neurons. And the researchers found that there was a distinct decrease in neuron complexity with exposure to radiation. So that means there were, in these tree-like structures, there were fewer branching points, and there was overall shorter length of the neurons. So that's definitely growth is being stunted. And they also found that what they called spine density was lower in the irradiated mice. And spines 
look like these little buds coming off this branch-like structure. These are little dead-end neurons. Okay, so this isn't the spine in your back. These are brain spines. These are these are little brain spines, exactly. I was confused by that, too, when reading the paper. Okay, cool. Um, so previous studies have suggested that these could play a really essential role in storing memories and transmitting signals along neurons. So the number of these little bud-like structures in the mouse brains were reduced. Mm -hmm. And what was particularly interesting is the number of spines present correlated really well with the discrimination index on the tests when the mice were alive. Okay, so what does that mean? So it means that the mice who ended up having more spines in their brain did better on the tests. Hmm. So, I mean, in terms of what we should take away from this, the researchers say that the eventual goal with research like this would be to be able to predict which people descend into space to predict how people will react to radiation exposure based on some measurable parameter. That's really interesting. So the idea that some astronauts are actually predisposed to being more resilient to the radiation. That's the idea. Now, the authors describe this as a, quote, significant challenge. <laughs> Essentially, they haven't figured out how to do it yet. But their best thought so far is that correlation between spines in the brain mm -hmm. And performance in the tests. Wow. So the thought is a correlation like that could be something that could be used in the future to help figure out which astronauts descend. Jeez. Because, that, yeah, that could be a really significant problem for long periods of travel and stuff. Absolutely. I mean, there's potential solutions that have been discussed. People have talked about building spaceships that can shield from radiation better. Right. There's There was a crazy design of a spaceship which had this huge layer of water all around the hull. Oh, I think I saw that. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really a tough engineering challenge because any of these big radiation shields are heavy. really heavy. You can't just throw one of those big lead bibs you get when you go get an x-ray over a spaceship. You can't can you? do a lead bib. You can't do a bunch of water. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot more fuel you're going to use getting to Mars. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a scary concept. Yeah, it really is. So, I mean, the next steps is they're going to try to work on those correlations to try to figure out if you can tell how people will react to radiation. Mm -hmm. And they also caution that they need longer-term studies to figure out if these changes in the brain, these physical changes, are indeed long-lasting. Right. Because they only important. test over six weeks. Yeah. So do you think this is going to hinder the progression of manned Mars missions? Or is this something I that don't... we're just going to hope the technologies come along by the time we actually go to Mars? You know what? I think the sort of people who volunteer for a mission to Mars probably don't worry about this. Yeah, that's quite possible. I don't think it's going to hinder us at all. But it's something we should plan for if we can. Oh my god, yes. Exactly. Huh. Well, thanks a lot, Lucas. That's a really interesting story. No problem. I... That's... What a, what a strange... Yeah. The idea that as soon as we leave this ball, it's not even, it's not even like the scary vacuum of space is enough yeah it's as soon as it's, we actually we can leave, protect ourselves from that there's other things hitting us that just degrade our bodies that we can't even see degrade our minds yeah. is almost even degrade scarier, our minds right? yeah exactly we've known about some of the physical issues like bone density and stuff from being in space yeah, for a long time exactly like zero gravity but yeah yeah the fact that cosmic rays can be limiting your ability to think properly that's terrifying yeah Okay, well, that's all we have for you this week. Um, we'll have links to all of the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. Uh, you can find those at doubleblindscience.com. 
hope you've enjoyed our adventure into exploring these two stories. Check back next week. We've got two more exciting ones coming up for you. Did you see something in the news that you'd like us to talk about? Um, maybe a headline that seemed too good to be true, or a story that no one's explained clearly enough? Give us a shout by email at stories at doubleblindscience.com or on Twitter at doubleblindsci. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Say there are there are no there are no parallels to human dating here. Okay, um, just checking. Yeah, maybe if you go over to your girlfriend's house, and you tickle the front door for a while, that that would be tickle, the closest tickle analogy. Tickle the front door. Yeah, until it yeah. opens up. Yeah, I don't know. It's a stretch. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. I'll well, let you know. <laughs>